Greetings. In the name and the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, welcome to worship with Blacknell. If you're a visitor or listening online, let me say a particular welcome to you and encourage you to write in, let us know you're out there and allow us to help you get connected. It was wonderful to see some of your faces as we gathered on the front steps to receive ashes this past Wednesday. And as some of us tuned in to watch the Ash Wednesday service last week, I'm encouraged by the way you're continuing to persevere. Take heart, friends. Recently, I opened the Bible and one of my children commented, Oh, I already know that story, Mom. We can skip that. This morning, as we begin a new sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, I wonder if any of you have that sort of niggling response. Oh, I already know those stories. We can skip that. I suspect equally that there may be some of you out there who would readily admit, you know, I've never read the Gospels or never paid much attention. Whichever camp you're in, wherever you're coming from, what matters is not whether we've read these stories one time or 15 times, but that we would be ready to listen, to encounter the Lord in them again. Our Bible, our scriptures contain four gospels, four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's generally thought that the gospel of Mark is the earliest account, the first written, and that Matthew, and to a lesser extent Luke, used the material from Mark, combining it with some local traditions in their own churches about the life of Jesus. Mark is the earliest gospel. It's the shortest gospel. The stories that we read this morning that take 13 verses in Mark take a whopping 28 in Matthew. But don't make the mistake and think that because Mark was early and short, that it's simple. The gospel of Mark is, it's fast-paced. It's mysterious. It's dense. It's more like reading a graphic novel than some florid prose. But the author knows what he is doing. He is driving us to a point. He's not giving us information to master. We've heard it once, don't need to hear it again. He's not trying to entertain us with something new. He's announcing the good news of what happened in Jesus and the beginning of a story that continues even now. So let's listen to the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. 
And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism for, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want you to take a moment and imagine what a movie version of this text would be like. After some opening credits, the title appears on the screen, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then suddenly, a voice, maybe a deep voice like Ed Henniger, addresses some yet unseen character. I will send my messenger ahead of you as the words of Isaiah scroll across the screen, kind of like the beginning of Star Wars. Suddenly, the dark screen cuts to a desert. A crowd is gathered on a riverbank. And slowly the camera zooms in on a rugged figure, lowering people into the water. Someone is coming, he bellows. One more powerful than I. I'm not even worthy to wait on him as a servant. All of you, prepare the way. Repent. And they do. Scores of people from the countryside and from the city come out to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. Then the camera begins to follow one man through the crowd. It seems that the main character, the one that we have been preparing for, has arrived on the scene. What's going to happen? Will he interrupt this gathering, assert his authority? Begin baptizing people with the Holy Spirit? He moves with the crowd. And when John delivers the invitation to repent, Jesus comes forward with the others. And then it happens. He goes down into the water and receives the baptism of John. What's happening? In my version of this movie, just as Jesus is under the water, 
the scene slows down just long enough for you to begin to wonder, do we have the wrong guy here? But then the heavens split open and a voice proclaims to Jesus, you are my beloved. What an opening scene. Who saw this coming? Everything about the title of the story, the good news of Jesus Christ, well, it makes me think of strength and victory. Good news was something you got from a battlefield. Jesus is a name that derives from Joshua, the one who led the Israelites into the promised land. This is the story of Christ, one anointed to do a mighty work for God. So why do we meet him among the rabble who need to wash away their sins? Why does the sinless son of God submit to John's baptism? And why is God so pleased by it? Did you ever stop and think, you know, that's kind of weird. It's okay to think that while you're reading the Bible. Just don't stop there. Learn to pay attention to that sense of discomfort as you read scripture and it can actually lead you into deeper understanding. Why does the sinless son of God submit to John's baptism and why is the father so pleased by it? As surprising as it is, maybe you had a sense that this is also, well, a little bit familiar. As the scene ends with Jesus being driven out into the desert, the wilderness, maybe you got that feeling like, huh, I think I've seen this one before. A prophet calling for repentance? God's people passing through waters and then being driven into the desert? This is, it's like a remake or better, a sequel to the story of God and God's people in the Old Testament. John the Baptist is like another Elijah. And in this episode, the role of Israel, God's chosen, beloved, is being played by one Israelite, one man, Jesus. Our text today is like the montage. You remember the montage from the 80s and 90s rom-coms where you see them walking along the beach, sharing a meal, and you know in the space of that time they've fallen in love. What we have in our text today is the montage where Jesus does the things that Israel did. Just as Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. As Israel was tested and wandered in the Sinai wilderness for 40 years, so Jesus is cast into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. But where Israel faltered. Jesus is faithful. He heeds the prophet's call. He doesn't ignore them. He withstands the temptations of the wilderness. He doesn't doubt or grumble. Why does Mark introduce Jesus to us in this way? Is it, well, a lack of originality on his part? 
Is it a stylistic trope employed by an author who wants to cast Jesus as the next installment of a centuries-old franchise that still sells? No. What we have here is critical information about who Jesus is and why he came. Jesus steps into the story of Israel. The Son of God takes on the lead role in the tumultuous love story of God and his people to bring it to a joyous climax and to secure a good end. He is the leading man. Jesus is the leading man who keeps the promises that Israel could not keep. He loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is the one who fully obeys the command, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Unlike all those who came before and would come after, Jesus is faithful to the vows Israel made. He is the one true Israelite who keeps covenant with God. But what he does, he does not for Israel alone. He has acted in our place. This morning, earlier in the service, we confessed our sins. And certainly, you're aware of your mind wandering, wondering what you should say, knowing that even if, even in the weeks where you're burdened, that you've only begun to scratch the service, your confession is somehow imperfect. What did Jesus confess? As he hears John's call to repent, has he forgotten God that morning, that week, that year? Has he Is he deceived about himself? Is he envious of his neighbor? Is he angry? No. Christ has no sins of his own to confess, but he took our confession on his lips. Before we uttered our imperfect confession this morning, Christ had confessed for us. As John lowers him into the waters of baptism, Jesus numbers himself among the sinners and asks God, have mercy on us. And this pleases the Father because he sees in his beloved Son the expression of his very own heart of compassion and mercy for us. Friends, this is the good news. That God is for us, not against us. Though we are bent on self-destruction, we are pulled towards the undoing of ourselves and our neighbors and this world that we have been given. God has secured a better ending for us than we can make or imagine for ourselves through one human life. Through the ministry of his son, The ministry begun here by the Jordan, completed on the cross, and confirmed by the empty tomb. Through this, he has restored our human nature. From within the depths of our own human predicament, from within the life of the God-man, he has undone the curse of Adam and secured a new beginning 
for us. It's been a while since we've gathered here together and seen someone baptized at this font. Remember what happens. A family comes forward to present a child. An individual comes forward to present himself or herself. The individual or the ones presenting the child are asked to reaffirm their faith. And then the pastor takes the water, a modest handful if it's Alan, a big splash if it's Dave, and pours the water over their head three times, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. At his baptism, Jesus publicly stepped in to our story. And at our baptism, we step in to his. Don't you know, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Our hope is no longer that we can be whoever we want to be and live happy until we die. Our burden is no longer the need to fashion an identity for ourselves. Our call is to take up our role in the story of what God is doing, to learn to play our parts in the story that begins here in Mark's gospel, but is yet to come to its glorious end. How exactly do we play that role? What are our lines? How do we live this new life with Christ? And how does his life change how I narrate and act in my own? That's the question we should be asking as we walk with Jesus and his first disciples through the Gospel of Mark. In his poem, Assurance, the 16th century poet George Herbert captures the struggle of living in a bigger story now in the present age. He concludes with these words. O most gracious Lord, if all the hope and comfort that I gather were from myself, I had not a word, not half a letter, to oppose what is objected by my foes, but thou art my desert. And in this league, which now my foes invade, thou art not only to perform thy part, but also mine. Thanks be to God.